And then around the turn of the second millennium, you know, around 2000, we get a convergence of satellite communications, robotics, precision guided munitions, the ability to put it all together in a single package, which, you know, was the Predator. Yeah, MQ-1 Predator. And the first time I saw this thing, I was I was uh, forward deployed. And I think we only had two or three of them in the inventory at the time, and nobody knew that they were armed. And I saw them flying with Hellfires on them, trying to hunt for bin Laden right after 9-11. And I was like, wow, I can't believe we have this capability. This month, Wayne Phelps joins the podcast. Mr. Phelps is a retired Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel who deployed five times, including two deployments to Afghanistan, two deployments to Iraq, and one deployment aboard a U.S. Navy ship. He was amongst the first conventional troops on the ground in Pakistan after 9-11. He also participated in the initial invasion into Iraq in 2003 and the troop surge into Afghanistan in 2010. He commanded units at every level, from platoon to squadron, serving as an instructor at the Marine Corps' Premier Aviation Training Squadron and served as a staff officer in the Pentagon. In 2014, he was selected to become a drone pilot, and he attended the Air Force's remotely piloted aircraft undergraduate training, becoming the first Marine Honor graduate. His last assignment was as the commanding officer of Marine Unmanned Aerial Vehicle Squadron 3 in Kaneohe Bay, Hawaii. As the commanding officer, he deployed four teams to conduct counterterrorism operations against violent extremist organizations. He holds a master's degree in military studies and a bachelor's degree in mathematics. His personal military decorations include the Bronze Star, two Meritorious Service Medals, three Navy and Marine Corps Commendation Medals, one with Combat V for Valor, a Navy and Marine Corps Achievement Medal, Combat Action Ribbon, Honorable Order of St. Barbara, and 2012 Marine Corps Aviation Association Command and Control Officer of the Year. He is also the author of the book on Killing Remotely, The Psychology of Killing with Drones. He currently resides in Austin, Texas with his wife and two children. And welcome Wayne Phelps to the podcast. Thank you so much, Wayne, for coming on. Kervin, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk with you today. Yeah, I saw I uh, saw you on LinkedIn. Sort of, I think someone was promoting the book on killing remotely. It was, I think, it was because it was added to the the it was the Navy War College, or it was added to the reading list of of one university. Well, it's been added to the Air Force Academy's UAS program kind of suggested reading list. So that was one. And then Space Command Senior Enlisted Leader, uh, Master Gunnery Sergeant Stalker, has is, is put it on his reading list as well. So oh, That is awesome. So would you like to give a background uh, of yourself, who you are, and uh, and how you got to writing the book on Killing Remotely? Yeah, absolutely. I'm a retired Marine. Spent uh, twenty years. <laughs> spent twenty years in the service. Retired in 2018. I started off as a, an air defense officer, so working Stinger missiles, kind of the standard platoon commander, battery commander, things like that within the battalion. And there was never an air threat during my time because I, I came in, in the late 90s, commissioned in 97, you know, pre 9/11, and then after 9/11. You know, we're, we're fighting in countries where there's 
there's really no air threat. So I did a lot of provisional infantry kind of missions, guarding bases, convoys, patrols, those those sorts of things. My first combat deployment was on 9-11. I was actually forward deployed on a ship in Darwin, Australia. And then, you know, when the attacks happened, we, we uh, sent the, the ship and all the Marines over towards Pakistan and actually into Afghanistan. So the first conventional troops on the ground during that conflict came back and then picked up a battery command and almost immediately started training the battery to go to war in Iraq. And then I, I deployed as part of the initial invasion in Iraq in 2003 as a battery commander leading about 150 Marines and then came back again in 2004. And I did half a deployment at that point because I was selected for school, you know, did school. And then I, I went off to the the Marine Corps Aviation and Weapons and Tactics Squadron to be an instructor, then back to school for a master's, and then back to be a battalion executive officer. We deployed to Afghanistan as part of uh, the surge in 2010, and then I did another deployment on a ship, spent some time in the Pentagon, and then at that point, I started working on drones, on UAS, right? Unmanned aircraft systems. I was working the programmatic and budgeting side of the house and requirements, and I really enjoyed it. And I said, I'm going to throw my name in the hat and see if they'll select me for this. And there was a new, a new occupation that was opening up at the time. Ended up getting approved and selected and went to the Air Force's remotely piloted aircraft training pipeline. Became the first uh, Marine Honor grad for the, for the course, which... Seems impressive, but I was I was a major at the time competing against second lieutenants. So I feel like I had a little bit of a leg up. And uh, what year was this? That was in 2014 okay. when I went, went through the pipeline. And then after that, I went to Hawaii for four years, my last four years in service to a squadron that uh, flies drones. And after two years there, I became the commanding officer of the unit. And then we supported operations overseas for... 24 of the 26 months that I was in command. So fighting violent extremists, uh, using drones to fight them, and then bringing in other assets to, to strike them, either artillery or you know air, manned aircraft. So that that's really what prompted me to look into how people are responding to this kind of work. I was getting towards the end of my career. It was April of 2018. And I, I've always had this idea that you know I wanted to write a book. And I pitched an idea to Dave Grossman, you know, Dave Grossman, who wrote on killing and on combat. And I said, Hey, I want to, I want to take all the work that you've done and like on killing and look at it through the lens of drones, right? Like how, how people respond to this kind of work when they are 7,000 miles away but they're looking at things on a screen and zoomed in, you know, high definition, uh, watching people for a long period of time. And, and I think there's, there's something there that needs to be explored and studied. And, and he was like, you know, I never expected to hear back from him. Obviously it was a cold pitch on, uh, you just reach, reached out to him and he wrote back and was like, that's a great idea. Let's do it. And at that point I said, wow. Okay. What, what do I do now? <laughs> you know, I was the, the dog that caught the car at that point. So he, he was a great mentor. He kind of guided me through the process. We, we created a survey where we surveyed 254 service members 
across all positions in remotely piloted aircraft, intelligence analysts, sensor operators, pilots, those kinds of things. And all branches of service and even some, some of our foreign allies, like the Brits, participated in the survey. And the one thing that really I, I really needed to get to the heart of was people that had actually used drones to, to kill uh, the enemy. And that could be anything from, hey, I found the enemy and I called it in. So they, there's a little bit of an accountability factor there. That they feel like they're responsible for the strike. Or I actually employed ordnance from my own drone, you know, fired a missile. So that's those are the people that I really wanted to, to survey. And, it's, and after that, I conducted over 50 first-person interviews to really add a, a quantitative nature of, of the study. I think that's a, a long answer to that's a question. A, that's, but, a, that's a yeah. great answer. And, and so right where you left off is kind of where I want to I want to pick up because in combat a lot of times we think of you know the, the what we would call in the army the grunts or you know the the marine corps as a whole going out and just face to face with the enemy and you fire upon the enemy from your weapon and see the other person die or or run away and now we've gotten into just like your book on killing remotely does a great job on the history of weapons and how we've come from sort of that spear into somebody's you know chest to cruise missiles flying off you know hundreds of miles away into a, into a location and, and now drones that can be flown thousands of miles away you know and now you're you're flying overhead and you're hitting munitions onto the enemy and you're having to watch that so I'd, I'd like to ask you where you think we are right now in sort of the mental health portion of of that sort of killing is has the i got out in 2015 so from there has the have you seen the military do anything different that is helping those guys who feel as if they took actions in their own hands even though it's remotely and they're having a difficult time with that yeah a lot of great points there so let me let me first address the the evolution of weapons that you talked about i i spent the entire first chapter just kind of uh, laying out how it's it's our nature, our tendency when we develop weapons to uh, try to make them more accurate, but at the same time, try to make the user safer by increasing the physical distance between combatants, between the you know the killer and the uh, the person that's uh, that's being killed. And you see that with you know starts off and, and I go way back in the in the book, right? Starts off with hey, it's a stone, right? So you got people fist fighting and then one person picks up a stone and it's like, well, I can, now I can hit you from a little distance. And then I just trace that evolution of weapons through archers and bows and guns, missiles, rockets, you know, satellites, which give us the ability to do precision guided munitions and lasers, you know, the combination of all of those things. And then around the turn of the second millennium, you know, around 2000, we get a convergence of satellite communications, robotics, precision-guided munitions, the ability to put it all together in a single package, which you know was the Predator, you know, MQ-1 Predator. And the first time I saw this thing, I was I was uh, forward deployed, and I think we only had two or three of them in the inventory at the time, and nobody knew that they were armed. And I saw them flying with hellfires on them, trying to hunt for bin Laden right after 9-11. And I was like, wow, I can't believe we have this capability. So I would go in and the launch and recovery crew, I'd watch the video feed, and then I'd watch them hand it off. 
to pilots back in the United States. And it just blew my mind that uh, we had this capability to fly a tactical mission from the other side of the planet. It was, it was crazy. So that was 2001. So that was got, over 20 years ago. Yeah. You and, got out, you got out in 2015. Yes. And over the course of about 20 years, the, the enterprise within the Air Force has only exponentially grown to the point now where the Air Force trains more drone pilots than it does manned pilots. I was just speaking at a graduation yesterday for the the newest 24 drone pilots in the Air Force, you know, and that's the third graduation that I've been to this year. It's only March and each one of those classes is just churning them out. I think they're about eight or nine classes in so far. Just, it's crazy the amount of drone pilots are training. So, your question was, uh, do you think that we have improved the mental health and the tools for these folks doing this mission? And I would say yes and no. There's an Air Force psychologist named Dr. Wayne Chappelle who's done a lot of research over the last decade, published lots of papers on this topic. He's, he's probably the first person that initially uh, documented that PTSD occurs for you know, RPA aircrew and intelligence analysts. Initially... I want to say it was 2014, he assessed it at about 4.3% of the people that he looked at had PTSD-like symptoms. A few years later, he conducted another uh, similar survey and found that about 6.1% of the people surveyed experienced PTSD-like symptoms. So the Air Force particularly is aware of the problem. They have implemented these things called human performance teams that are supposed to be embedded in remotely piloted aircraft squadrons. There's, they have a clearance. They're supposed to be there to help. They could talk about mission-specific things, You know what happened, what went wrong, how are you feeling about it, all that kind of stuff. That was implemented after Chappelle's you know, first survey. Uh, and then the second survey showed higher numbers of PTSD. I don't know if there's, if it's, you know, there's a correlation between the two that maybe people feel more comfortable about their own mental health now that they can seek help and they get you know, the, the number goes up. Yeah, that or, was that was going to be my question. Yeah, you know, what because I can I can tell you from my time. You know, I was at Bragg in starting in 2009 when ramping up their their program out there, and I know early on the way I felt when I heard you know the the guys the sensor operators or the pilots who would complain about having issues or PTSD, and I would pretty much you know what the military says, shut up in color, <laughs> tell them just shut up, guys. It's it's not that big of a deal. But as I've grown and gotten out and and reflected on all of that, I've kind of changed my opinion on it and, and how mental health is very key in keeping not only these guys in uniform, but continuing the job without destroying their lives. Yeah. Well, it's, it's counterintuitive to think that somebody sitting in a box in the safety of the United States that's flying a, a combat mission on the other side of the planet should have any sort of mental issues with the work that they're doing, right? It's counterintuitive for, for you and I to think that, and, and we were in the service. Yeah. Uh, so it's definitely hard for civilians to think like, why would you even be bothered by that? And I want to just uh, touch on a couple of points. First, there's been lots of research done on uh, content moderators. And I talked, I talked about this in the book a little bit, but uh, I just heard another story yesterday on NPR about TikTok moderators and how they're still suffering from some of these things. So content moderators are these humans uh, that are employed by social media companies like Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn, TikTok, YouTube, all of those folks. 
they're employed to keep the worst content that people attempt to post off the internet, right? So they have algorithms that'll do the first screening and they'll send it over to a human. And a human is like, okay, you're looking at things like murders, rapes, you know, beheadings, pornography, racism, just the worst of humanity or that people are attempting to post on online. And you have, you have a human after the algorithm, you know, sends it over to say yes or no, make the decision. The human has to do the screening of it and they, they get about 25 seconds to look at it and make a yes or no decision and then move on to the next one. And, and they have a quota, you know, each day they've got to hit their quota and it's just crazy. Like most of these people that you hear about are, are not doing well, right? They're suffering from some sort of traumatic experiences from the things that they are observing, even though they're, they're in no physical danger, you know, they're, they're not in harm's way. They're just seeing this deluge of just horrible stuff happening. Right. And that's, I think that's one extreme because that's, that's like every 25 seconds, something else bad is happening. And that's how you spend your entire day. That's going to mess somebody up. What, what makes the PTSD diagnosis actually possible for RPA crews and intelligence analysts is the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual of Mental Health, otherwise known as the DSM. The DSM-5 is the latest edition that came out in 2013. The DSM is, is considered the Bible by you know mental health professionals. It's their go-to. In 2013, there was a few updates to kind of the precursors for PTSD, the things that, you know, these conditions have to be met in order for someone to fall into the category of a diagnosis of PTSD. And, and they removed one thing as well, in so, which I think is very important. They removed the fact that a person had to fear for their own life or their own safety, right? So leading up to this, that was kind of a, well, you know, you, you were in a car accident or someone was uh, you know trying to murder you or you were being shot at in the line of duty things like that you feared for your life and that would you know be a precursor to a PTSD diagnosis they removed that that precursor no longer exists in there but that seems huge yeah Th that is huge and I don't know if they had the drone crews in mind, or if they were thinking of content moderators or, or what, but I think they were around that time, we were starting to see more and more people that were having these traumatic experiences from doing work remotely, right? Whether it was killing with a drone or looking at social media content, things like that. It was just it was crazy. The other thing that's important to note is within the DSM-5, they added another thing that says, and I've, I'm forgetting the, the actual term for it, but they, they added in another line that said, if uh, screen trauma was a thing, as long as it happened in the line of duty, right? So, and what that means is, you know, observing horrific traumatic you know things occurring on a screen now that makes that makes a lot of sense to me because i lived that life you know yeah. for, for 15 years but if you don't mind explaining the process of of you have the pilot you you have the sensor operator you have what's called an isr tactical controller that's across in the country that the drone is flying and all these guys are looking at screens and if you don't mind, if you can break down sort of that process and who has seen what and what's actually going on. Okay. So you have 
the the actual air crew where you've got a pilot and a sensor operator. The pilot flies the aircraft, the sensor operator moves the camera, you know, zooms in the camera, all of those kinds of things. But both the pilot and the sensor operator can be looking at the camera feed at any any given time because the pilot is also the one, at least with the the reaper, the pilot's the one that that fires the missile, right? And the and the, yeah, the sensor exactly, yeah. yeah. And the sensor operator is the one that guides the missile onto the target. So that's the air crew. Then you have intelligence analysts. You have the ISR tactical controller, like you talked about, who can and also sometimes uh, referred to as a mission intelligence uh, controller or coordinator. Yeah, it's uh, gone back and forth. I know when I, even when I was in, they would yeah. go, it's a coordinator or a controller and sort of in the military words, mean things. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's basically a person that's sitting on the crew that is helping to analyze uh, from an intelligence perspective of the legitimacy of the target. They're helping to uh, positively identify that it's a valid military target. For striking, they're also helping with determining collateral damage. You know, if we strike this target from here, what's the blast going to look like? What's going to going to be the damage to you know collateral structures? And are we going to kill any sort of civilians based off this blast? You know, frag pattern and things like that. So there, and then the the ISR tactical controller is connected to this huge enterprise of intelligence analysts who are also viewing the same video. And sometimes you could have, you know, you could have lawyers that are called in to, to view and that they, the whole crew between the people flying, uh, the intelligence analysts, the lawyers, you know, commanders, even the commanders in the field that you're supporting can be looking at your, your video feed and that everyone can be chatting back and forth. So it's, it's a bunch of people that are dispersed, all looking at the same video, trying to coordinate actions on well, you know, on an objective of what they're trying. Yeah. And so, you know, with that, we're talking about mental health and about specifically putting munitions on the ground into a person and destroying that person's life. But then there's also, and, and I'd like to get your comments on this, because I also think there is this sort of process where the sort of the intelligence side picks, chooses is not a good term, but but validates a enemy combatant or a terrorist is in a certain location and you you see that person moving around and you only have, whether it's seconds or just minutes, for that whole process you talked about to all come together and be approved and then munitions go down. And, and that sort of, to me as well, brings up sort of these PTSD, mental health issues as the stressor of that situation where if you don't make this happen, you know, there, there are going to be some stars, some generals or some senators that are going to be asking questions about why this didn't happen or why it went wrong. Yeah, the the pressure on the crews to constantly strike targets is is enormous and it's it's at pretty high levels too, all the way up to the commander in chief sometimes based off of different targets, right? Let's so if if a target is a high enough priority and let's take an instance like Qasem Soleimani, general from the Iranian Republican Guard. I think I got that correct. But he was basically right. was yeah. yeah. So we killed him in Iraq in 2020, I believe. I think it was January of 2020. Killed him outside the Baghdad airport with a you know, with a missile. That kind of target 
is going to go all the way up to the highest levels, right? That's going to be a presidential authorization for somebody of that importance. Anwar al-Awlaki, a U.S. citizen killed in Yemen. Yeah, I actually, I worked that mission, actually. Yeah. That, uh, so that's funny. That's <laughs> funny you bring it up because that would may have been one of the most stressful missions for us as a team. Yeah. And that's, that's another one, right? Because you're talking about, you're trying to get over the hurdle on the legal side of killing an American citizen overseas without due process, which is strictly prohibited in the Constitution. So you use this is still being debated today. I think we've killed eight U.S. citizens in drone strikes that I've found in open sources. And out of those eight, only one was deliberately targeted. Like that was the, you know, the nature of the target. The other seven were inadvertently killed because they were surrounded by, you know, a target we were trying to go after. But Al-Alaki was the only U.S. citizen that we were deliberately trying to kill. Now, whether he deserved to be killed, whether we had the legal standing to kill him, and whether it was the right thing to do, those are those are all debates that we could spend hours talking about. Yeah, I don't think we'll get to that on on this podcast. <laughs> no. I, I would I would say I'm yeah. not the one to be talking on. So yeah, yeah, you have yeah. more experience than I do in that sort of realm. Yeah, I, and I only bring that up to say that these are the you know if the president calls because you got a phone sitting there when you're flying, you, the president you know calls and we're like, hey. Kervin, you're cleared hot to kill, you know, kill Soleimani. And you're like, okay, thanks, Mr. President, you know, missiles away. Yeah. You don't get that in other, other weapons platforms, other manned aircraft. You don't have that, that same level of interaction and you don't know the, you know, the, the direct line to those approving authorities. So there's this huge pressure. And then also the amount of conflict we've been involved in. It's, I've talked to people that have had nine strikes in a week. You know, they're flying thousands upon thousands of hours. Most people I talked to out of the ones I surveyed had been part of 50 or more strikes in their life, you know, in their career. So I had this notion that the most, you know, all of these strikes, like people that have had more than 50 strikes, that's going to have some sort of, you know, quantitative impact on them. Like once you get past 50 and beyond, like that's just so much for a person to handle. And that was that was my thesis initially, or, or that was my uh, hypothesis, I'm sorry. After conducting some research and interviews and the surveys, that's not the case. It's not the amount of strikes that you conduct. It's it's really the nature of the strikes. Like You could have 100 good strikes and be completely fine, or you could have one bad strike and you're just, you know, you can't shake it. Yeah, that's, that's a good point because I also think, and I'd like to know if in your communication with people, if they mention this kind of stuff, you know, the aftermath of the strike, there's, there's always, and I think I know for myself and I think every person going through it has uh, that initial reaction of celebration. We did it. We got the guy. And then right immediately after that, the, Oh my goodness, did we do the right thing? Did I do something beneficial or did I just mess up someone's entire Yeah, especially people that are in the intelligence community. The guys like you that did this, where you feel responsible because someone else is acting on the information you're providing, right? So you feel accountable for it. Uh, I almost think that intelligence analysts between ISR tactical controllers and the folks at this enterprise, I almost think that they're they're struggling with this a little bit worse than than the drone crews. And a drone pilot, uh, captain in the Air Force, 
who had recently read the book, he asked me why, you know, why do I think that is? Uh, and I think that's a great question because I, for one thing, my sample of intelligence analysts compared to the sample of drone crew, you know, pilots, sensor operators was, was a lot smaller. So there, there could be some bias in the, in the sample. Another thing is, you know, the training that you receive uh, in the RPA pipeline, I think prepares you like it's inevitable. You're going to be part of a strike. Some intelligence folks I've talked to were like, you know, I was picking out targets for strike packages for F-15s and now I'm full motion video analyst and I'm watching guys getting blown up in, in real time. In, in high definition. And, yeah, uh, I, I know in some cases, zooming into body parts just to make sure it, that person was who the intelligence analyst said it was or who the, you know, the sort of other pilot or the sensor operator said, yes, I followed that person. I know 100% that's who that is. So, yeah, I, 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 would, I don't know if I say that the intelligence analysts are more so, but I do think it's kind of on the same lines. I mean, you're... I had to I had to wait to get out to think about this and kind of reflect on it and go, you actually killed people. You know, it was your your information that killed these people. And you have to deal with that. And and there's a few ways to deal with it, honestly, you know. Yeah. Drugs and alcohol is one way, not a not a good way, but that that's how people still to this day try to solve that issue and but I think I think I like where this episode's actually going. It's not really going where I kind of wanted it to. But the the mental <laughs> okay. health issue I think is very, yeah. very, very important in this entire thing. Oh, it absolutely is. So I I determined that there were three incidents that would occur during a mission that were most likely to cause what I called a negative response to killing, and I, you know the. The survey determined that there was a spectrum of responses ranging from positive to you know neutral to negative and by positive i don't mean you know you had a you're you're standing up and high-fiving and cheering although that that does occur yeah it, it happens you know yeah. in, the, in the jock or whatever wherever you're at it, it does and it's not in celebration of the fact that we just killed somebody it's in celebration of hey we worked hard on this and this is going to save you know save lives in the end. And that person was being targeted for a reason, you know? Yeah. I mean, so, I mean could you imagine if you're at AT&T headquarters and, and somebody said, Hey, I just killed this person and everybody got up and high-fived each other. <laughs> yeah. That's the strangest. <laughs> but that's the military for you. <laughs> yeah. Strangest context for celebration, but, but it happens, you know, we're professional warriors and that's, that's what we're trained to do to, to kill when it's, when it's necessary and required. So three incidents, you know, you get your positive, the neutral is just, Hey, I'm a, kind of ambivalent. I'm just doing my job. It doesn't affect me one way or another. And then your negative responses are things that are basically straight out of the DSM five from uh, PTSD like symptoms, you know, anxiety, fear, loss of drive to do anything, anger, you know, you name it, you think of them all it's in there. And there was, so I, the vast majority of folks had positive to neutral responses, right? Like 85% of them weren't affected the majority of the time. And around you know, 15 to 30 that had some sort of negative response. I really wanted to dive into that. And I wanted to understand why, why they're having a negative response, what caused it. And a negative response could be short-term or it could be long-term. If it's persistent, 
long term, then that's kind of that's that's where it moves into the realm of PTSD. Uh, a lot of folks will have a an initial negative response of like, I can't believe I just killed somebody, but then it subsides over time and there's no you know long lasting effects. Three missions or three incidents that occurred conducting what we call pattern of life missions. So watching an individual f- for a very you know long extended period of time. And, days, weeks, months. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, forever, yeah, it seems. Depends on, you know, the target because you might just be gathering additional intel on who they who they meet with and, you know, trying to figure out their network so you can bring them all down. It's almost like police work. Yeah, it's a, it is a lot like sort of a, a detective or investigator who's just casing a joint or just sitting outside waiting for something to happen. It, it Intelligence analysis, as I explain it, is always, I say, it's just like a a detective. You're trying to get information and make a decision on that information. So watching this person for a long period of time, which enables you to see the humanity of the person because you're seeing things that they do that normal people do that you can relate to. Yeah, like you you see, I've seen it before. A kid comes up and hugs them and and they're playing and they look like everyday human beings and you're being told no that's the most evil guy in that area yeah and especially during a counterinsurgency fight they're not wearing a uniform you know just the uniform itself is like okay they're wearing a uniform i'm gonna kill that guy you know that's that's the bad guy but if you know if you see a guy walking around in board shorts and (laughs) flip-flops and he's wearing a hat and his daughter's hugging him you're like that's the guy like yeah he's evil so there's there has to be so much trust in the system of all the other intelligence that's coming to you from other sources that says yes that's a legitimate target, and then you know you'll watch watch this person do some of these things and occasionally there might be some sort of nefarious activity that you see them do and you're like aha okay, and then you find the time when it's right to strike that target and you know maybe you do it in front of his family maybe you don't you know it's all of those things have happened. And then you got to watch the family run and, you know, see them mourn and, or, or sometimes you'll, you'll kill that individual in a different location. And then you'll watch all the way back through the funeral. So you'll still get to see the family mourn all of these situations that no other weapon system or platform does, right? You know, F-16 doesn't drop a bomb and then be like, okay, we need you to stick around for the funeral. And they're like, yeah, man, I don't have enough gas for that. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's an excellent point. And you talk about things like cruise missiles or or mortar fire. You, you, those guys are not watching and waiting for the family to come so that they can no. follow them to the funeral. Like you said, it yeah. does not happen. So that's that's the first one. Pattern of life recognizes the humanity. The second one is anytime there are friendly forces on the ground that we're supposed to be protecting that get wounded or killed in action. There's a lot of folks that say that, you know, drone crews are disengaged, that they're not into the fight because they're remote and we just make it, we make it uh, too easy to kill. We make it like playing a video game and that, you know, they're not connected. And, you know, my studies and research and talking with folks, this is the opposite. These people are absolutely engaged. They're in the fight. And when the people that they're protecting get wounded or killed, they feel probably some survivor's guilt and some responsibility of I could have done more or what could I have done to prevent that from happening. So 
that uh, that doesn't even have to do with striking a target, but that's that's a, a thing that happens during a mission that affects people. And then the third thing is anytime that there's civilian casualties, it, it doesn't matter if it's deliberate civilian casualties, which I'll talk about here in a second, or you know, kind of inadvertent civilian casualties. So the, let's talk about the, the civilian casualties that occur inadvertently. You know, we don't intend to kill anyone other than the target, but occasionally people move into the objective area, into the target area as you're, you know, the missiles in flight or, you know, bombs are away. Yeah, I guess and, we should, I guess we should say, you know, it takes, I mean, depending on how far, how far up the drone yeah. is, it, it takes a certain amount of time to go from off the rails. To, yeah, know. there's, there's a time of flight and then there's. You know, we typically, if somebody moves into the area that we see on our video and you're zooming in and zooming out, or you have somebody that's overhead, that's also, you know, doing a far collateral and you're doing near, if somebody moves into that picture, you can, if there's enough time, you can move, you can shift cold, right? You can move the missile to a different location where it's not going to kill someone. That's better than, you know, a miss where no one dies is better than killing the target and a bunch of civilians that you didn't plan on. So that's happens, you know, that happens. But if the, if it's too close, you know, you're talking about a missile going fast and it's, if it gets too close, sometimes, you know, kinematically you can't move the missile off the target. So that's how sometimes civilian casualties occur. A situation is where we deliberately cause civilian casualties because the nature of the target is of such military value or gain that it's acceptable to, to, have a few civilian casualties. And this sounds horrible to say, but it's not against the law of war or the rules of engagement. There's nothing illegal about it. Yeah, there's a certain amount of collateral damage that is acceptable Yeah, uh, in, in those situations, depending, just like you said, depending on the level of target, uh, if it's a high value target. The only time that we've seen this person out of their house mm -hmm. in 20 years, and it's today, that that decision does get made. I've, I've been on the on that side of that. So yeah, that's that's a great point. But those are some like morally challenging things that you're dealing with, right? I mean, it's it's the whole like trolley going down a down a hill, and it, you know you can save save ten people, but you have to kill one person or something like that, right? Like if you kill this one individual that we've been trying to kill for two years. And, you know, oh, by the way, you probably kill his daughter and son that happened to be and his wife. And, you know, if you kill them, then that will prevent, you know, 10 attacks, you know, next month or something. Right. I mean, just it's, it's all some of it's hypothetical of, of the game, but these kinds of individuals we're talking about the approval authority can still go all the way up to the president uh, or, you know, secretary of defense. So yes, depending on the collateral damage uh, you expect to occur. So you might get a call or approval that says, hey, this is the president. You are cleared to engage, you know, that target. HVI number one, high value individual number one. That's the guy we've been trying to kill for the last 10 years. I'd say it was bin Laden back in uh, 2010. If we found him someplace, how many people would we risk killing if we could kill bin Laden in a strike, you know? That's an emotional decision too, because most Americans would be like, eh, yeah, 50, 10, I don't know, right? Because it's yeah. been Laden, right? And, and each person, I think, each citizen of the United States would have a different number. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 
You'd say a uh, hundred thousand would be fine if if a hundred thousand people died because that would save millions. Yeah, yeah, you know, sort of like the the atom bomb when that was dropped. It, those guys dealt with the exact same thing their entire lives. Yeah, just how many people did you kill to stop a war that could have gone on for for much longer? Yeah, versus how many people did you save or you know prevent from dying on on both sides because. The Japanese never would have surrendered, uh, and we would have had to invade the mainland, and it would have it would have been bloody. And so, th- those are the kinds of questions that uh, this community uh, is facing. And, and here's the final point I want to make on that, Kervin: is you might have the president or SecDef or you know some combatant commander within the chain of command making the decision. Yes, I accept that level of collateral damage. Go kill them. But they're not the ones that have to carry it out. They're not the ones that have to necessarily watch the strike. They're not the ones that have to feel that same level of accountability as the intelligence analyst, the sensor operator, and the pilot. So there's this this feeling that the they have to carry with them the rest of their days of knowing that they they have killed people that were you know, civilians. And I think I think the military has come a long way in allowing those kind of people, especially when you're getting into this this community, the intelligence community, the RPA, the UAS community, where it's you know everyone, pretty much everyone has top secret. They have all you know all the various compartmentalized little things at the end, you know SCI, all that kind of stuff. And if you go to it was when I first got in, if you go to a mental health person. That's a red flag, and your clearance could get taken away depending on what that mental health professional said about you. Yeah. Um, and I think since then, now that was like 2000, and we're talking 2022 now, it's been a, a huge, there's been huge progress on that in, in telling people that you can, there's not a stigma to that yeah. mental health anymore. Well, openly we say there's not a stigma. Right. right. <laughs> amongst amongst warriors, I think there still is a little bit of a, a stigma and it's way past that. Well, I think we have to we have to normalize those talks with mental health professionals, with peers. You know, I, I laid out three things that happen during a mission where you're most likely to have a negative response. And rather than saying it's up to you if one of those three things happens during your mission. You know, it's up to you if you want to go seek help. I think we take that out of your control and say, if something like this happens, you have to go seek help, right? So, so we're no longer the bad guy or, you know, we're, we're the bad guy. I'm sorry. The institution is the bad guy in making you seek help. And the individual is like, oh man, they're making me go talk to the wizard, you know? So, so, and I don't know if that's a term they use in other services and I just find it funny. So yeah, I yeah. can't mention on here, yeah. but uh... But but the point of that is we have to normalize that we know that these things cause negative effects on people. So let's not give them the choice to manage their own mental health. Let's get them help right away. And let's look at them and talk to them in increments, you know, right after it occurs, you know, a week later, two weeks later, a month, six months, you know, you got to check in because you process things at different times. Like you, sometimes you don't have time to reflect on this until you take the uniform off. And what do you do then? You know, I, I spend a lot of time talking with 
veterans uh, that have done this kind of work, they were fine all the way up to the point where they took the uniform off and had time to reflect on things. And and now that they have had time, they're like, oh man, that was crazy. I can't believe I did that for so long, or that was the work that I had to do. And now it's, you know, now it's, it's, it's there. It's Yeah. And I think sometimes it gets to the point where you sort of repress that sort of information and then the uniform comes off and, and that's a big part of someone's yeah. career. It was a big part of my career. I bet a whole paycheck. It was a huge part of your career is, is your military career. And once that uniform comes off, you have time to reflect. And wow, this 15, 20, 25 years, what did I do? Yeah. And that's the point where those memories come flooding back and, and you have to have a, you start to have an existential crisis and try to figure out where you stand in civilization. Yeah. The, the second point I wanted to make on that was if you go and seek mental health help, and you're removed from operations, that means, you know, there's no just like bench of, you know, 10 deep people waiting to get called in to play the game, right? There's just enough or usually a little less than what we need to do operations. And if you're removed from that, from that starting lineup, then that means that your peers have to work that much harder to make up for your absence. Uh, regardless of what position you're in, whether it's intelligence analyst or sensor operator or pilot, and the missions have to get done, right? They're required. There's there's no like canceling the mission because you know Kervin didn't show up for work today. He must be sick. Okay, well let's cancel that line. They're like no, nope, this this person's going to cover two now. Yeah, that yeah. happens a lot. I'm yeah. glad you brought that up because two running two three lines as a uh, as an analyst and then. A pilot, if a pilot goes down, there's not much left. You've got crew rest. You've got uh, yeah. a limited number of RPA or UAS pilots. So so that now becomes, oh, I was going to run an eight-hour flight. Now it's going to you know 10 to 12 hours. And then the next person comes in who did a 12-hour, now has to do it. Yeah. And and there could be people on the other side of the, the planet in a fight that are counting on that drone being overhead to either provide surveillance or to provide you know, strike capabilities. And if that's not there, then you're making their lives more dangerous. Or on the flip side, because we don't necessarily, we're not very judicious about how many sorties we fly and how they're tasked. We just have like, a, we need 70 combat air patrols and that's the number. And we never reduce the number because requirements or operations subside. It just keeps going up and up and up, which continues to put more pressure on the system. And, and what I mean by that is combat air patrol. Imagine a drone flying an orbit over a specific geographic location for 24 hours a day in support of whoever owns that territory and by owns, you know, a military commander who's responsible for it. That number, if you remember when I said I saw the first two or three predators, 2001, that would have been able to form probably one combat air patrol. And now we're to the point where you've got almost, I want to say it's 70 open source, 70 active combat air patrols around the globe yeah some you know, some of those systems can fly 18 to, to 20 hours and yeah. and 
going 18 to 20 hours. Next one's up, and it's just a continuous 24-7. What we like to call the all-seeing eye of the of the drone. Yeah, that's that's where we are today. Right? I think there's things that we could do to reduce the the requirement. We could look at, you know, do we really need this many combat air patrols all the time for each combatant commander? If we could provide a little bit of relief, then that provides more relief on the the line squadrons, the people that are providing intelligence for them. The more relief you get, the more opportunities you get to take care of your own mental health and to take time off, right? So it, it has this cascading effect of it's just constant pressure right now. And we didn't talk about this, but there's no dwell time. You know, my deployments, I went into country, I came home, I took, you know, took some time off. There's no dwell time for people that are fighting remotely. You go and do a combat mission every time you go to work and then you come home. Yeah, it's not, hey, I'm, I'm deploying. You do four months, however long it is, 12 to, to 20 hours a day. And then you come back home, like you said, and it's not, well, let me go back to being a janitor. It's, well, let me go back to doing exactly what I was doing deployed, but just now at home. Yeah. Yeah. And then anytime you're at home, you're you're balancing two worlds, you know, the home world and the work world. And everyone, I'm sure, can relate to this. You know, you've got these these competing taskers sometimes, like, you know, your spouse will call you at work and be like, hey, I need you to do this. You're like, but I'm working on this stuff. And you're like, like, it doesn't matter to me. Here's what you need to do. So you have these competing requirements. When you're forward deployed, you you sever the home requirements, right? You're focused on the mission. You're downrange. You're just focused on doing your job. Yeah. And you see a lot of guys would rather be deployed because yes. of that situation. Exactly. And what we have going on with the RPA community is that they're they're deploying to combat every day and then they're deploying home every day. And then that's part of the struggle. And you have these things that happen on, on your mission. And then, you know, two hours later, you're sitting with your family at dinner or you're, you know, you're driving around the city and it's, it's just surreal. Last thing that's horrible. I, I want to touch on this. I, I don't know how much time you have, but sleep is super important to our our mental well-being and doing shift work and shifting your sleep cycle in tight consecutive you know blocks like every six weeks going from days to nights and then back is one of the worst things that we could do to people and i think that's a fairly easy fix like hey you're you're the new guy guess what you got the worst shift for the first year you're here you know i'm sorry but that's the that's the way it is like you know seniority has its privileges as they say in the military yeah but that you know i i get it's the crap night shift no one wants to do that no one wants to be away from their family from 5 30 in the evening till 5 30 in the morning but if you're doing that for a year you can kind of adjust your schedule when you're doing it like you said like we we did for six weeks and then you go to nights and then six more weeks you're not just going staying on nights or going to days, you're flipping the week. So your schedule has then now flipped. So you are working Sunday through Wednesday. Now it's Wednesday through Saturday and your entire life changes. Your, your sleep schedule changes everything. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I've, I just, actually, I just read, you know, something not good for mental health scrolling, doom scrolling through Instagram, but uh, there was a great like psychology account that started to talk about the lack of sleep and what it does to you. It affects your brain negatively cognitively 
it negatively affects it, and then uh, you suffer from depression and that kind of stuff. And I know I've seen that all through the community. Yeah. So imagine that you're already sleep deprived. You know, you're. There's also studies that show that people that are sleep deprived tend to make ethical mistakes in their missions, whether police officers or military folks and things like that, right? And everyone can relate to this. Everyone's been tired and you're not your best version of yourself. You know, you're short with people, you're angry, you know, you're grumpy. You're like, all I just want to do is sleep. Well, imagine you're that way and then you show up. And your job is to follow a person that you've been following for the last two years, watching him hug his children. Uh, and this day he moves away from his children and you get to kill. And then his children show up and you watch the funeral and then you go home at the end of the day that you've had just a horrible day. That's super emotional. And you get home and, and your wife hands you the colicky baby that she's been taking care of for the last 12 hours while you've been, you know, screwing off at work. Right. So, yeah. And that work conversation usually is what, you know, to, she says, Hey, how was your day at work? Well, what do you, what do you respond? N no one responds with, I just killed a guy and uh, I'm struggling with that because everything is clandestine and through, you know, secret means. And so you can't yeah. just go home and, and talk about it. And that's another issue, another mental health that I think needs to be solved. And so, uh, yeah. That's, that's really what I loved about the book. And I do want to say, it, everybody, if, if you're listening to this and you haven't read the book, go get it. I did it on as an as a audiobook, so Audible has it. It's in it's in hardback. Is it in paperback as well? No, not yet. Not yet. Yeah. But that's it. I mean, hardback is the best way. Uh, I, I would tell everybody read it, especially if, like me, if you're a history buff and also somebody that has dealt with mental health issues in this sort of remote killing, it, it deals with all of that. And please, everybody read the book. And so it's, I, I, we only have a few more minutes left. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I did want to ask if you have any thoughts on sort of the future of this warfare when we get into sort of an aerial denial and we can't fly in, a, in an area, but we still need drones to to see things or to, to, to pick up signals and, and yeah. that kind of stuff. What do you see as the future? Yeah, that's, that's actually what I'm working on now for the next book is autonomous weapons or lethal autonomous weapon systems. You know, they're called all kinds of different things, but basically think of a, a robot or a drone that can sense the environment, positively identify a target as a valid, you know, legitimate military target make the determination to engage the target on its own and then take out uh, take that action to you know shoot or strike or employ something All right so th that's the trend of where we're headed between uh, artificial intelligence sensing autonomy robotics the united states says that we will always have a human on the loop right and on the loop means that the thing could be completely autonomous and the human is just out there watching and, you know, can hit the pause button or the return home if something goes wrong or can hit the yes button to, to actually engage uh, something. What I think will occur is out of operational necessity and out of strategic competition, we will have to, or we will be forced to employ autonomous weapons with a human completely out of the loop, or their point in the loop is at the very beginning where it says, 
here's your area to go to, here's your target sets. If you find any of these with high confidence, you know, 90% or greater, determined by your onboard processing, then you can you can kill those targets and then report, you know, come back and then report mission success. Yeah, I'm sure no one has a negative opinion on that, huh? That's <laughs> so, you know, that I've got to get that book. I got to write it first. Yeah, that intrigues me a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so it's not just a one-sided argument too, because there's folks that say, look, think of self-driving cars. If you can make a self-driving car safer than, you know, cars that are driven by humans, where we kill 30,000 people on the road every year, do we have a moral imperative to prevent people from killing each other on the road? If we can you know, reduce that, say we reduced it by, you know, 90%, there's, there's always going to be some sort of accidents, but if, if the car is safer than the human uh, or the machine is safer than the human, you know, should we, should we do that? Well, what if, what if lethal, you know, autonomous weapons are more precise and can engage targets with less collateral damage what if they don't commit war crimes? What if they're not tired? What if they're not angry? What if they're, you know, et cetera, et cetera. All the things that make us human that also make us vulnerable to making mistakes. Machines machines aren't vulnerable that way. They're vulnerable in different ways. And I think the only issue I, I would say that people have talked to me about in this situation is who is to blame whenever, whenever this happens? Because we yeah. as a society always need somebody to blame. That's probably why our politics are, are so bad <laughs> these days. So we want to blame the other person. You can't blame a machine. What are you going no, to do? Shut it down? No, you can't blame a machine, and you can't blame you can't blame the engineer. You can't blame the you know algorithm developer. I think we have to get to the point where if if that's the path we're going down, where the person that's accountable for actions on the battlefield is still the commander, just like they're responsible for their troops' actions on the battlefield now, not necessarily individual actions, but as a whole, right? So they set the conditions, they, you know, they put them in the uh, specific area, they tell them what's, what you can't engage and what you can't. I think you can still hold commanders accountable for that, which means that they're going to have to have a great understanding of how these systems are tested, what they're capable of doing, where they will most likely fail, where they're best employed, all of those things. So it's a whole new way of thinking about it. Yeah, and it's a it's a new rabbit hole to go down. So uh, yeah. definitely going to have to get you back on because we just do not have enough time to get through everything. Like I said before, it went we went down a path I wasn't expecting, but I thought it was important uh, to get that message out because I do think that's a very mental health is a very important uh, part of remote killing. I'm glad you touch on it in the book. Uh, I highly recommend the book. It's a I mean, it's there's a lot. It's a lot of pages, but it is a quick read because there is so much information that goes to it. So, so Wayne, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for providing just some great insights into into remote killing and the mental. Yeah, absolutely. It's been my pleasure, and thanks for having me on, and thanks for the engaging conversation. I'm always trying to get the word out about the struggles and challenges uh, of our community. We want to thank Mr. Wayne Phelps for joining our podcast. You can find his book on Killing Remotely, The Psychology of Killing with Drones in both hardback and audio formats. This conversation centered around mental health issues of the drone community. Whether you are part of remote killing or have other mental health issues, please find a trusted mental health professional to speak with. If you are a veteran in need of immediate help, 
please contact the Veterans Crisis Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK or 8255.